Hello and welcome to MattCast, a podcast from the Department of Media and Communication at St. John Fisher College. I'm podcast producer and media and communication major Ed Vivenzio. We're still on semester break, but we're pleased to bring you a conversation Dr. Lauren Vicker recorded with Dr. Doogie Bickett, Associate Professor of Media and Communication. Dr. Bickett, a native of Scotland, talks about how he came to study in the U.S. and the teaching and research interests that led him to St. John Fisher College more than a decade ago. Welcome back to MacCast. I'm Lauren Vicker, and joining us today is Dr. Doogie Bickett. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Um, I thought maybe we could start out by you talking a little bit about your background and, and what brought you to Fisher. I know that when we were interviewing you, one of the things that we really liked was that you brought an international, intercultural perspective to the department and the program. So tell us a little bit about how you got here. Oh, well, okay. That's a, it's a, a long and gory story, but uh, I'll, I'll try and keep it short. Um, so um, I've been at Fisher here for, this is my 10th year. I just had my... Uh, 10th year luncheon, which was very nice. Hard to believe it's been all that time. And uh, I, yeah, I arrived here in 2006. Prior to that, um, I taught at uh, Geneseo, uh, SUNY Geneseo, and uh, I was there from 2000 to 2006. But if I sort of swing back right to the beginning, I'm originally from Scotland, that's the accent, and I have been in the United States now for nearly a quarter of a century. It's been quite a long time. I came over as a graduate student, met my future wife in Glasgow, and then I came to do an exchange over at her college in Pennsylvania. Uh, one thing led to another. We uh, we returned here again, and uh, and we got married, settled down here in the states. Um, I went to I worked at a newspaper for a while in Pennsylvania. Went to graduate school in the mid '90s out in Seattle, University of Washington. Uh, completed my master's and PhD there. From there, uh, came back to New, well, New York State. Came to New York State, working at SUNY Geneseo and then from there to Fisher. So that's really it in a nutshell. Wow. And wasn't there a line in your CV about at one point you were a Bobby in London? Yes, um, many years ago. I'm uh, <laughs> definitely feeling um, quite old these days, but um, back in the uh, mid-80s, I was a police officer in London. Um, and uh, I, um, yeah, I joined the Metropolitan Police um, just after my 19th birthday. Uh, seems ridiculously young age to do that, but uh, I had this thing where uh, my best friend and I wanted to join the uh, the police, and his dad was a, a cop, and uh, we were both going to um, going to join up together. Long story short, um, his dad, and more more to the point, his mum uh, talked him out of doing it. Um, she hadn't been too happy with all the hours and the late hours and the, the danger involved with the job, even though it wasn't that dangerous. Um, but still, she didn't, didn't, didn't want to see her son doing the same thing that her, his dad had done, her husband. And so he, 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 he got talked out of it and I said, well, I'm going to do it anyway. And so I did. So uh, I, I went down to London since they were the first people to offer me a job. And uh, yeah, I spent about four years working um, in the uh, police down in London. For the most part, as a, yeah, as a bobby on the beat, um, but then we would do other turns or details as um, at various times and places. But uh, yeah, it was, a, it was a fascinating experience. It wasn't something I, I decided, it wasn't what I wanted to do with the with my life or the rest of my life and I, or at least I needed to find something else to do and um, it was I decided to, to leave and do a bit of traveling around the world then went back to college university and uh, and decided um, to go down a different 
path which led me to where I am today. Yeah, well, yeah. that is that's a great career path, I must say. So when you when you uh, first came to Fisher, I know one of the things you used to introduce yourself and say, "I teach the bookends," because you were teaching Com One Hundred, the first course that majors would take, and mm-hmm. then you were teaching Com Four Twenty, which was the last course that a lot of our students would take. And, but your teaching has changed since that time. So could you talk a little bit about the courses that you're involved in now? Yeah, that's a that's a good good way of um, of introducing where, where I started when I was teaching here, because if I started at the sort of the bookends, I feel like I've sort of moved in towards the middle. Uh, yeah, I, I did teach the uh, introduction to mass communication class uh, Com One Hundred uh, for a number of years. I was one of the uh, faculty that taught it here. That was that was interesting, and it was nice to be able to sort of be the first point of contact for new majors and other people that were potentially interested in. Uh, in the field and um, I still uh, teach the senior seminar now it's called communication seminar but when I started the number was the same COM420 but it was uh, it was known as a senior seminar and um, that was the, the, the other end so I, I spent that took up a fair old chunk of my teaching load and what's happened since is that um, I've, I've no longer teach the uh, the the Communication 100 class and our former senior seminar, now Communication Seminar, is about to be renumbered starting next year. It will no longer be COM 420 Communication Seminar. Um, it will now become 201 Communication Theory and Research, which is a it's not dissimilar to the course we have just now, but basically we've, we're moving it to the, the, the middle years of, of students' careers rather than the end point, rather than it being something that you do in your last semester or two. It's now something you take typically in the, your um, sophomore or junior years um, as, a, as a preparation towards further study in, um, in the communication field and also to make sure that you have a, a continuing theory and research experience which starts with the, uh, the 199 class um, and then moves through uh, 201 and then you can do further research on your own if, if that's something you're interested in. I think it's a, more, it's a more natural place for it to fit given the way the course has developed over the years and um, I'm looking forward to, to teaching in this slightly amended format but in a new position I think it'll work well I'm fingers crossed anyway I think we're going to have some alums listening who are going to be like no 420 because yeah (laughs) yeah. regardless of when they took it they always remember that course (laughs) yeah it's it's quite an experience it'll still be it'll still be a fairly rigorous course so students going through it now aren't uh, they're not going to get an easy option by any means Um, (laughs) it's just it's it's just going to be a little different is all Mm -hmm. okay so talk about some of the other things that you offer as well so um, I've been uh, teaching a, a lot in the areas of, um, well, uh, I'll tell you um, a, a course which I, I dreamed up a few years ago and I think has been quite successful, which is the uh, um, our visual communication course, uh, COM220. And um, that was, I thought that it was something that as a department we could certainly use um, in order to basically study and analyze and appreciate uh, the powerful role that vision or visual communication plays in our society. The fact that we've we're in some ways been moving slowly and steadily away from a typographic or text-based um, or typographic text-based culture into one that's more visually stimulated, visually oriented. Typography isn't going away, but the, the, the extent to which we've moved into a visual realm has been quite stunning. And I thought that was something that should be studied on its own terms. And also, um, 
I liked the idea of being able to introduce it, uh, introduce students to this area as a precursor towards more advanced study um, in the applied communication fields, especially things like web design or uh, digital vid video editing, the, the classes that are, that are offered in the department there. As it turns out, um, I do have some students, uh, comm majors, that take the class, but I also have very large numbers of um, outside non-majors that take the class as well that seem to be fascinated by the area. Um, it always fills up very quickly which is gratifying um, and uh, but it's a it, it's a course I offer every semester basically because it's, it seems to be a lot of demand for it and I want to try and get at least some of our majors in there as well. Yeah, great, a, yeah great yeah. foundation for a lot of things that they need for later on so that's, yeah. that's been that has been good and I understand you've kind of redone the international course for next semester Right. Yes. Um, yeah, that, that required a little bit of tweaking, a little bit of inside baseball, but um, it was originally offered as a, as a 300 level course and it wasn't getting enough student numbers. And I think it was just it was just numbered wrong. It should really be a 200 level course. That's where it's natural fit. So um, I've, uh, I've, I've re it's not I've not com I've not completely re revamped it. It's still essentially the same course. It's at the 200 level, so not quite as rigorous as it was before, um, or not quite as hard. But also added some more intercultural elements to it as well, to, um, so that where students don't just study the, uh, the the systems and media organizations foundations of international communication, but they also get a taste of some of the intercultural um, issues um, that that come together in an era of globalization when you have um, uh, people with very different ideas about what's right and wrong or what what, um, what is culturally appropriate and then with globalization you have these new media organizations and um, not, even at the level of individuals of course we live in a world where um, where everybody is, is, is on Facebook and on Twitter um, and uh, we, we're all just one click away from the this, this stuff that's being shown all around the world. So I think, uh, like so many things, and it's very similar to visual communication, because I think in both international communication and visual communication, at one level, students feel like they have, they're pretty well grounded in it. And they're, in many ways, they're very sophisticated m media consumers, much more sophisticated than I was at their age. But at the same time, I think that there's a lot of stuff going on underneath the surface that they need to be made more aware of and so that they can make more connections between what's underneath the surface and then what they see every time they open up their, their cell phone or they look at their smartphone and they're looking at their Twitter feed or Instagram or whatever else it might be. Media literacy is very important. I think it's uh, something that, that we need to do a lot more of and uh, I think these are both examples where you could uh, you can do a lot more to help students become ultimately better citizens and more informed citizens through um, being able to uh, understand what's going on beneath the surface. Yeah, and now it seems like international media, I mean, the media systems are changing so much, uh, mm. even month by month or, yeah. you know, looking ahead to the next year and, and some mm. of the changes that we've seen based on some of the political changes, uh, not just in the U.S., but, you know, across Europe and around the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a constantly moving f field and um, it's, uh, it's, it's difficult to it's difficult to grab onto at times, um, and it can sometimes seem overwhelming. You know, we we live in an era of information overload. Um, so I th I think um, you know I think back to the way classes were taught when I was going to college, which wasn't that long ago, but <laughs> long enough that it seems like an age ago, and um, the the extent to which you have to keep altering and adapting and and 
um, your, your course content to, to take account of these changes because there's the things it feels almost like we need to be studying it in real time and uh, uh, and it's it's tough to be able to to do the thing which I think we need to do which is to step back from the um, the big booming buzzing confusion of everyday media and then talk about what's really going on I mean the recent election is probably a good example of that um, we all the things we were talking about on the day-to-day -day were not really the things that we should have been talking about and um, you know whether you're whether you're looking at the rise of fake news and perhaps the um, the uh, the involvement of foreign powers, particularly Russia, um, in in the news cycle, plus you know the the campaign itself and the, the issues that we were dealing with on a day to day basis, and even right now, um, where uh, you know it seems to be the media is fixated in whatever tweet tr Donald Trump comes out with this morning, and that seems to be what drives the news cycle. Um, it's it's fascinating the extent to which a campaign or somebody like a Donald Trump is able to use the media and is able to manipulate the media in such a way that it ultimately it, it works to his advantage and wins him elections. And again and again, the experts keep getting wrong-footed. And uh, it seems to be something that's happening more and more these days. And uh, we... I think we all need to just take a step back and say, okay, we really need to try and figure out what's going on. So right. just not shut off your Facebook feed for a while, <laughs> go a bit cold turkey. I know that's impossible, <laughs> but you know, think about just get step back for a moment. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it keeps us professors in media and communication on our toes, though. We really, yeah. really have to kind of stay up to date on on exactly what's happening. But not not to forget the um, the 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 underlying forces and be able to sort of look at some of the deep structures. Um, and so it's it's yeah it's a very kind of intricate dance and it's very difficult to do. I, I find it harder and harder than certainly hard it was when I started yeah. um, to 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 get that balance right. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So you um you also teach a film class, correct? Yes, um, I uh, teach a class in Irish and Scottish film. Um, and uh, that's another film, another class that's been uh, quite well received. It's actually started out as a request um, from uh, Dr. Tim Madigan, who runs the Irish Studies program here. And um, he was he, he asked me if I'd be interested in doing a, a class. Um, and he mentioned Irish film as being perhaps something I'd be interested. In. And I said I, 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 that would be fine, but I would also like to make it Scottish film as well, and <laughs> you know make it a, a Celtic thing. Sure. Um, which I think makes sense because there's a lot of um, parallels between the two countries for obvious cultural and historical reasons. And there's actually a, a deeper bench of film about Scotland than there was of Ireland. So I thought it was a good idea to put the two together and then you can have a sort of a compare and contrast type of class. Um, so yeah, I've been running that for about, I think, four four years, five years now, maybe five years now. Oh, wow. um, and it's, a, yeah, it's a, an interesting, interesting class. The biggest insight I think I've had into doing a film class on a regular basis is to, for me anyway, is to not try and do it in a single class, in, an, even, in an evening class. You know, uh -huh. there's sort of six to nine or 6.30 to 9, 9.20 type of time frame. When I started, I was really trying to show entire movies in, in a single class. And uh, I think 
students being students sometimes maybe got a little bored or wanted to take a break and we just didn't have time for that so what I've done is I have it, have it now in a daytime class twice a week and I show chunks of movies I don't even guarantee we'll get to see the whole thing we usually do but some some movies like Braveheart for example it's nearly three hours long so I'm not able to show the entire class I try and keep movie time to about a third of the class no more than that and preferably even less so that we have more time to actually talk about the, the classes and talk about um, the the two main tracks of the sort of history and culture of Ireland and Scotland and then also a film studies track where we talk about nar- uh, narrative cinematography editing those types of things um, so I, I, I think we've got a a pretty good um, balance for just now it's, uh, for um, for that Irish and Scottish film class. So it sounds like you've got a pretty good mix of classes that are offered primarily for media and comm majors and then those that are available for students who want to take a course in the core. I've, I've most more of my classes are core classes now than are not um, <laughs> and so I'm, I, I do get a, a large number of students from outside the department. I think that has helped in a few cases to attract students into into the department, which is always very nice. Um, it also helps um, us with our seat load and getting our bums on seats, if you like, making sure we have we we fill up our classes. But yeah, um, when when I started, you know, a lot of our courses weren't in the core. We were we were primarily oriented towards serving our own majors, and that's shifted a little bit just now. And uh, and. Um, and now, so we have these core designations for the uh, Irish and Scottish film class, of course, then visual communication and international communication as well. Okay. So let's um, shift gears a little bit and, and talk about what you actually do in the summer. A lot of people think that college professors just tend their gardens and uh, sit around and read journals, but you actually have another little side activity that you've been involved with for a few years. Uh, yeah, the the National Park Service. Um, for a number of years, I've been um, working with the National Park Service, um, basically being a summer park ranger, either on a full time or more recently on a part time basis. Uh, back in two thousand and nine, I started working for the Park Service in Philadelphia, and this is the when I say the Park Service, I'm I'm talking I'm not talking about the big national parks out west. These are the historical and cultural parks um, that deal with American history and culture. The place where I uh, initially um, worked was uh, Independence National Historical Park in Philadelphia. It's kind of my home away from home. My wife's from the Philadelphia area. It meant I had a place to stay there. I could stay with the in-laws when I was working down there. And um, it was it's it was a fantastic experience. So um, working at the uh, Philadelphia is the home of Independence Hall. Um, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution were both debated and signed. Uh, it's also got the Liberty Bell there. Um, it's, it's also the home for Ben Franklin. And there were a number of other, there's a number of other historic sites there as well. It was the um, Congress Hall, the second home, and the, the oldest home of, that was, uh, the, the oldest building that was once the uh, Congress of the United States. So that was a, that was a fascinating experience. I took a break for a year and then I picked up another gig in New York State this time at Saratoga and that's what I did last summer. So I was working at Saratoga National Historical Park, which um, is the site of, um, of, a, of a key battle in the Revolutionary War. They often call it the turning point of the revolution, which is uh, where a British army that was invading from Canada um, was uh, defeated and turned, turned back, and then they actually were forced to surrender the entire army. So it was a big deal at the time. Um, some people, it was kind of like the Gettysburg of the Revolutionary War. 
So that was a that was a fascinating uh, that's been a fascinating experience as well. Part time, which is good, so I you know I, I don't need to devote, devote all my summer to it, but it's a uh, but. It's an area I'm very interested in, so I, I enjoyed it. So they had you study <clears throat> up on history so that you could oh, yeah. report to that. And I bet the yeah. tourists were a little surprised when they had someone from Scotland uh, giving them a tour. <laughs> yeah, and uh, they, they, they certainly were. And uh, it, it was always a bit of a conversation starter, an icebreaker, and uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, but there's a, you know, there's a... There's a strong um, Scottish connection with the battle as well, since one of the key regiments that was there, uh, the 20th Regiment of Foot, um, was a Scottish regiment, and uh, and so that was. Uh, there's always an element about that I can regale the visitors with if they're so interested. Um, it's uh, it's it was a nice experience. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, absolutely. Um, another thing that I'm not sure everybody knows about you is that you have another activity that you do in the winter time outside of school, and that is um, that's curling. And curling oh, is a the sport. Curling, yeah. yeah, curling's a sport yeah. that we only hear about during the Winter yeah. Olympics every four years, but yeah. you've been involved for a while. Well, I've actually given up the curling in the oh, last couple you? of oh. years. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's um, it's it's a lot of fun. I, I mean, curling is a very interesting and, and, and fun occup- thing to occupation. It's a fun thing to do. I, the thing that was killing me though with the hours, um, it, the the curling club here is very successful and it's it's a lot of fun. The trouble is, it's because of its success, the the leagues have to run late into the night, so they basically yeah. split it up, and you have a, you know, if. A, when I first started, it was actually nice because most times you would curl, you would have a game from seven to nine, and you'd stick around maybe for a beer and a chat, and then uh, you know you'd be done, and it wasn't too late yet. But they had to sort of push things out, so you started at nine o'clock, and then every other week you were there till you know the game would run to eleven o'clock, and then you were hanging around helping to clean up. You you know you didn't get back home much before midnight, and wow. uh, I don't know, I'm 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 not able to handle these late nights quite as much. It's uh, it, that was a that was a shame, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, and uh, you know, it's a if anyone's seen curling on TV, it's a, it's kind of enticing, and once you start watching it, it just sort of sucks you in a little bit, and you start to really think about what's going on. And you le- if you learn a little bit of the strategy, it's fascinating. So yeah, the ca- Canadians love it, and you can sort of see why. And uh, it's been getting a bit of pickup in the United States as well, and even outside of Olympic years, you'll sometimes see it on. Uh, um, on ESPN or one of the stations, they'll, they'll maybe run some curling when, you know, if it's a quiet day. Right. And did did <clears> that <throat> come from Scotland or what it was origi- your, your interest? Uh, oh, it originated in Scotland. I, I never actually started the game. I never played the game in Scotland, ironically huh. enough. But the first time I tried it was out in Seattle. We had some friends that uh, talked us into coming along. And um, so I went for a couple of times over in Seattle, but I didn't I didn't stick with it. And uh but when I when I moved out here, um, I met a Scottish guy that actually goes curling, and so uh, we joined up and uh, started curling. And uh, yeah, I did it for a number of years. Uh, it was and you know yeah, it was a lot of fun. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I definitely enjoyed the experience. <laughs> I think if you ever find a way to sort of do it in the earlier hours of the evening, right, then I, right, would be yeah. quite, I, I wouldn't mind getting back into it again. <laughs> yeah, finding the good ice time is always, a, yeah. is always an issue. So yeah. anyway, I've certainly had some interesting conversations with people before about the mechanics of curling, because everyone always wants to know, how does, how does it 
how does the, the, the bend around the ice and what's the point of all the sweeping? I mean, right. what, what is that anyway? And there's a really good explanation for it, but I won't bore you with it. Okay, and I, my question always is how cold do your feet actually get standing on yeah. the ice? <laughs> well, you get these special shoes which are insulated and then they have these plastic right. soles so you can slide okay. along the ice, but they're pretty well insulated and with a good pair of socks. I mean, you, you manage to keep your toes fairly fairly um, warm. Actually, the best thing about sweeping is that it keeps your blood up. It keeps it keeps you um, active and keeps you warm. Uh, the worst place to be is the skipper of the team because they're the one that's standing up at the other end calling the shots, but you just stand on the ice all the time. That's when your feet get cold. Okay. So right. you need to keep moving. That's the, the key thing. So, and you're really getting exercise. Oh yeah, yeah. They reckon it's about it's probably about two mile walk equivalent of during a game. Yeah. Very good. And you good. you know you're when you're really you know you're really pushing hurry hard and you're that uh, you you do get your your um you do get your blood up. I wish I I didn't have a Fitbit at the time, but I'd I'd love to do a game again with a Fitbit on just to see what my heart rate goes up to and yeah. what they, yeah. Interesting. Oh, wow. All right. Well, this has been really interesting, and we really appreciate your joining us. So thank you, Dr. Doogie Bickett. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks. MattCast is a production of the Department of Media and Communication at St. John Fisher College. Listen to MattCast on SoundCloud or subscribe to iTunes. Justin Proietti is our designer. Dr. Lauren Vicker hosts the podcast. Cecil Felton is the executive producer, and I'm audio producer at Vivenzio. Thanks for joining us on this episode, and we'll be back next week.